Hey, good morning, Journey. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you are joining us this Sunday morning. I also want to give a big welcome to our streamers this morning. You're probably wondering why I'm preaching on video rather than here live with you today, um, and I'm going to blame it on an ice storm. Uh, not any ice storm that's happening right now, but an ice storm in 2007 that drove me away today. Say, so Christian, how does all that exactly make sense in your head? Well, here's what happened. In 2007, I got invited to speak in my hometown of Chillicothe, Ohio. One of the first times I had spoken in my home church since I started in ministry, and it was going to be a really quick trip. I was leaving one day at like noon, flying into Columbus, driving down and speaking, and then leaving the next morning at 6 a.m. I was going to be back in Kansas City less than 24 hours. So Danielle decided to come with me, um, and we were just going to kind of make a, a date evening of it. So we flew to Chillicothe. Um, I spoke in Ohio. The next morning we got up, we flew to Chicago, and while we were waiting to catch our flight from Chicago to Kansas City, a, a small ice storm, not a huge one, a small ice storm kind of hit Kansas City and it shut down the airport. So they told us, hey, nothing's going into Kansas City for the rest of the day or night. Um, your flight is canceled. Uh, we'll put you up in a hotel, come back tomorrow. So we end up in a hotel in Chicago. We don't have any clothes. We had to go shopping and buy underwear. We had to buy shirts for the next day because we were only planning on traveling for 24 hours. We got up the next morning to find out what flight we were on and the ice storm had worked its way kind of slowly into the Midwest up into Chicago. And when we called the airport the next morning, um, they said, now all the flights from Chicago are canceled. Nothing is leaving Chicago today. Just kind of settle in. We'll try to get you on a flight tomorrow. So we kind of made a fun day of it the second day because we had a whole day in Chicago. We had no place to go, nothing to do. Um, and we went to bed that night hoping to get on a flight the next morning. We called the next morning and they said, listen, everyone is trying to get everywhere. There are no seats for you today. Sorry, you're going to be in Chicago another day. And we ended up on this mini unexpected three-day vacation in Chicago. And on the third day, we were sitting in a little cafe along Michigan Avenue just kind of hanging out. And we looked at each other, and it was like I was looking at my wife for the first time since our honeymoon. Um, it was like we had been on an extended date. It was like we were on a second honeymoon, and we looked at each other, and it was almost like introducing ourselves to each other for the first time again, like, hey, you know, my, my name's Christian, nice to meet you. And for the first time really since our honeymoon, our life was all about us. You say, what had stopped you from traveling together? What had stopped you from ever taking time for yourself? Well, I've got a lot of good excuses money had. Um, you know, we never had enough money to do anything like this intentionally. Leaving our kids with two young kids that we just couldn't pull ourselves away from leaving for a few days. Um, we didn't have enough vacation time at work. We used it differently. We were busy in our lives. There was really no urgency. You know, our marriage wasn't falling apart. So it didn't seem like a big deal that we had to leave. And I, I don't think we just, we didn't see the value in taking time for each other. But since that week stuck in Chicago, there's never been a year that we haven't got away for at least five days just together just to kind of get to know each other once again. And that's where we are right now. We've started doing that over Valentine's Day week so we could spend time on Valentine's away. And, and here's why. Up until that week in 2007, our marriage was a reality, meaning we were married, but it wasn't a priority. Um, our marriage wasn't great. It wasn't awful. Sometimes it was even okay, but it wasn't great. And I've got to be honest with you, I don't even know that either one of us maybe had a goal that it would be great. Um, when I was little, I had some goals. 
Maybe you had some goals. I remember for a long time, I wanted to play professional sports. Like that was my goal. I wanted to grow up and play professional sports. You say, which one? All of them. Um, you know, I wanted to be Barry Larkin, who was the Cincinnati Reds shortstop. I wanted to be Michael Jordan, who was playing for the Chicago Bulls at the time. I wanted to be John Elway. Like, like I wanted to play all of them. I had goals. I had a goal to be a lawyer for a long time in high school. I, I felt like that was going to be my, my lot in life. I, I wanted to be a coach. My dad was a coach, and I always had a goal that I could be a coach. And I always wanted to be a dad. Like I remember when I was young being, being excited about one day getting to grow up and be a dad. Like All those things were things in my heart and things in my head that I wanted for myself. But I never had a goal to be a great husband. I mean, it just wasn't a goal of mine. You say, Christian, why not? I'm not sure. But I know this. We have hundreds of little kids who are in our church today. And I bet if we went to our kids' ministry and asked all the kids to write out things they want to be great at when they're older, I bet not one little boy would say, I want to be a great husband. I bet not one little girl in our church today would say, I have a goal to be a great wife. It's just not even on their radar. And I bet if we were to ask the people who are in the auditorium today, What is your goal in your life to be great at? If we haven't really thought about it, I bet no one this year set as one of their goals to be the greatest husband this year that they could be, to be the greatest wife this year that they could be. Marriage, for many, is a reality, but it's not a priority. Marriage is a reality, but it's not a priority. If you haven't already, pull the sermon notes out of your bulletin, fire up your Journey Church app so that you can follow along and take notes today. Because for many, marriage is a reality, but it's not a priority. So we're going to spend three weeks kicking off this brand new series called Better Together, talking to people about how to make their marriage not just a reality, but a priority. In order to do that, we're going to have to teach you how to change your mindset. We're going to have to teach you how to have a different mindset forever about how important your marriage is. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is by looking deeply at our relationship with Jesus and understanding our relationship with Jesus and how important, and how, how important spiritually marriage is to understanding how we love people, how we receive love from people, and how we return love to people. When we look at our relationship with Jesus, we learn all those things. Now, for those of you who are not married, you're already thinking, this series is not for me. I'm going to make my grocery list. I'm going to get on Facebook. I'm going to check out and do something else. Listen, hang tight, because I believe this series is designed to teach you more about Jesus than it is about marriage. So if you're not married, if you're single, If you're divorced, if you're widowed, um, if you're just a teenager, you say, man, I'm not going to learn anything the next three weeks. Yes, you are. You're going to learn a ton about Jesus because this series is designed to teach you about Jesus. And here's why. Only when we really learn how to interact with Jesus can we learn anything about how to have a great marriage. So today is actually going to be about Jesus first. If you're married, what you learn today is going to carry over into your marriage. If not, It's going to really become a staple of your relationship with Jesus. Um, And I want to be honest with you. As we learn today, I think you're going to learn some of the most challenging and convicting things that I've ever learned about my relationship with Jesus. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is going to be our Bible study home for the next three weeks because Ephesians is a great book to learn how Jesus 
applies to everything in our life. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are real theological. It teaches us a lot about what we need to know about God so we can spiritually relate to him. But the next three chapters are the final three chapters in the book of Ephesians are all real practical, practical ways that we can live for the God that we have learned about. And one of those practical ways is in marriage. I want to start at Ephesians 5, 14 through 17 with just a few verses to reflect on. These are not new. We've started the year with these as we tried to learn how to live intentionally. And I want you to see two words that I'm actually going to ask you to repeat in a minute. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 14, says this. Paul says, this is why it is said, wake up. I want you to look at somebody sitting next to you and say, wake up. Right now, look at somebody next to you and say, wake up. Paul, after teaching us about God, Paul says, we've learned all this so we can wake up. We've learned all this so we can apply it to our lives. Paul said, this is why it said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We've been talking all year long about intentional living that will allow us to live fully alive. Paul said, I'm going to teach you how to do that. I'm going to teach you what the Lord's will is. And as he continues in Ephesians chapter 5, he starts talking about what the Lord's will is in all these relationships, but he begins with marriage. And I want you to read from the pen of the Apostle Paul what God's will is for marriage with me today. Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. We'll be here for three weeks. Here's what it says. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husband. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives must submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let me ask you a question. Does this text teach us about Jesus or about marriage? Think about that for a minute. Does what we just read teach us about Jesus or about marriage? The answer is both, obviously. However, here's how that lesson kind of comes across. Paul is telling us that the greatest picture of a healthy marriage is the example of a healthy relationship with Jesus. That's what Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 is saying. The best picture of a healthy marriage is the picture of a healthy relationship between Jesus and his church, Jesus and his people. And I don't know if you saw it, but Paul gives us in Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, four statements that define a healthy relationship with Jesus. And before I read these statements, I just want to warn you what I have had to process in my heart. These statements present one of the most challenging pictures of the gospel that I've ever processed. 
They present one of the most challenging pictures of how we are really supposed to respond and interact with Jesus that I've ever seen. It's an unbelievable picture of how we should relate to Jesus. And I want you to see that married or not, if you're a Christian, this is powerful. Paul makes four statements about the underlying connection of people to Jesus that are so strong that I actually have to wonder if everyone in this room actually loves Jesus the way Paul says we should. Four statements that Paul says, if you want to see what marriage looks like, look at what healthy Christianity looks like, because underlying healthy Christianity are these spirits represented by these statements. Statement number one, I have found someone in Jesus that I want to serve for the rest of my life. I want you to actually put a little T or a little F beside that statement on your notes. Is that true of you or is that false? Paul said that healthy Christianity is when we believe we have found someone in Jesus that we want to serve for the rest of our life. Is that true or false of you? Look at verse 21. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul said, my primary motivation to do marriage God's way is to serve Jesus. My primary motivation to do marriage the way God wants me to do is because of how much I want to serve Jesus. Which means the next statement has to be true of your relationship with Jesus. Statement number two of a healthy relationship with Jesus. I have found someone in Jesus that I trust enough to submit to for the rest of my life. Is that true or false? Just put a little T or F on your notes. I have found someone in Jesus that I trust enough to submit to for the rest of my life. Look at Ephesians 5, 24. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. You know, the, the word submit is a Greek term. It's a Greek word, the word hupotasso. And it's a military term meaning to rank under. It is a willing submission where you are willing to put yourself under somebody that you're giving complete leadership in your life over to. It is, in essence, giving away your rights because you trust the person you're giving them to to make all the right calls for you. You know, this, I think, is going to be hard for some of the people in this room. Maybe you're new in your faith walk, or maybe you have a faith walk that you feel like is much more of a partnership than servanthood with Jesus. And you say, you know, I don't know that I'm giving away all of my rights, but that's what submit means. You know, the greatest obstacle to the Christian life is the loss of independence that it requires. It's one of the hardest things that people have to face when they give their life to Jesus because they're not just inviting Jesus into their heart to join their life. They're literally giving up their life for the life that Jesus wants them to have. And I'm not talking about submitting your time. I'm talking about submitting your authority. I'm talking about you saying Jesus can now be in charge of my marriage, whatever he says. Jesus is now in charge of my parenting, whatever he says. Jesus is now in charge of my finances, whatever he says. Jesus is now in charge of my emotions, whatever he says. Jesus is now in charge of my moral compass. Whatever he says is right, what he says is wrong. I'm giving him all the authority to make those decisions on my behalf. Have you found someone in Jesus that you trust enough to submit to for the rest of your life? 
Because Paul says when you have a healthy relationship with Jesus, this is what it looks like. And he says this type of relationship isn't a struggle, it's an honor. Why? Because of statement number three. Paul presents to us the the underbelly of faith that says, I found someone in Jesus that I'm motivated to sacrifice for because of how much he sacrificed in me. Again, would you say that's true or false of your relationship with Jesus? I have found someone in Jesus that I'm motivated to sacrifice for because of how much he sacrificed for me. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, when we read the New Testament writings, there's a lot of calls to sacrifice. There's a lot of calls to surrender. There's a lot of calls to give of yourself. But do you know what? Amazement at the sacrifice and love of Christ is the motivation for all New Testament calls to love, defer, and serve. I mean, the New Testament asks a lot of people who follow Jesus, but always with the backdrop of how much Jesus did for us. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The Apostle Paul uses the backdrop of Jesus' motivation for his sacrifice. Paul said, I love Jesus and I'm giving my life for him. Because he loved me and he gave his life for me. I have found someone in Jesus that I'm motivated to sacrifice for because of the way that he sacrificed for me. And then Paul says, number four, I have found someone in Jesus that I'm committed to add value to because his success and our success is more impactful than my success. Look at verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. You see, the power of Jesus in people and Jesus people in the world, that partnership, Jesus in people, Jesus people in the world, that partnership, Jesus in you, you in the world, that is the hope of the church. And Paul says, when we look at healthy Christianity, there is this underlying thought that I have found someone in Jesus that I'm committed to add value to. I'm going to lend my life to his mission because his mission is more important than my mission. And when I'm on his mission, I actually have more impact in the world. Who he is and what we do together is more important than me on my own. It's the promise and the challenge of Acts 1.8. When Jesus told his disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, but then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, you and I are going to make a powerful combination, and you and I are going to have a powerful impact for others. So Paul looks at Christianity and says, this is what real Christianity looks like. So we've got to have a little bit of a reality check this morning. Because the background of Paul's teaching on marriage assumed that the people of Ephesus saw Jesus this way. I mean, before Paul taught on marriage, he had to teach on Jesus, but he said, everything you know about Jesus is going to help you in what you need to learn about marriage. So we have a reality check, and we ask, do these statements describe your heart towards Jesus? I mean, did you have four T's lining your page? Would you say that your relationship is summed up by 
serving Jesus for the rest of your life, submitting to Jesus for the rest of your life, sacrificing for Jesus for the rest of your life, adding value to Jesus for the rest of your life. Like, would you say, yeah, that summarizes my heart towards Jesus? Because after we have a reality check, I want to play a little game of truth and dare with you. Not truth or dare, truth and dare. First, I want to look at this truth. If you don't have this heart towards Jesus, you'll never have this heart towards your spouse. Or anybody else for that matter, for those of you who are not married. If you don't have this heart towards Jesus, you'll never love your parents this way. If you don't have this heart towards Jesus, you'll never love your siblings this way. Your kids, your coworkers, your friends, your roommates, you name it. If you don't learn to love Jesus in this way, you'll never love anyone that way. Why? Because if the unconditional, never-ending, sacrificial love and partnership of Jesus doesn't compel you to love him back this way, your spouse has no chance. Because they cannot love you like Jesus can. And here's the dare that I want to give you today. If you can learn to develop this heart towards Jesus, you can dare to have this heart with your spouse. You see, only after looking at this text through the lens of the gospel, does Paul then kind of turn it and say, do you see now what marriage should look like? Understanding who Jesus is and how, how we properly love Jesus tells us how to properly love our spouse. So let's look at these statements again, but let's, like Paul, let's take our love for Jesus and apply it to our love for our spouse. It's the exact same statements, but Paul said marriage and the gospel, they're going to overlap each other so we understand one another. What are four statements that define Christian marriage? Number one, I have found someone in my spouse that I want to serve for the rest of my life. True or false? I want you to put a little T or a little F next to that number one. Unless your spouse is sitting beside you and it's an F, then just don't write it and ignore this part of the message. I have found someone in my spouse that I want to serve for the rest of my life. You know, it's being willing to serve Jesus for a lifetime that makes it worth serving a spouse for a lifetime. You'll never find someone who... Who, deserve, who deserves for you to serve them like you would serve Jesus. But if you're willing to serve Jesus, it makes it worth serving your spouse. A Duke University ethics professor did some research and then wrote a book on the fact that no two people are meant for each other. And one of the biggest problems in marriage today is we try to find the person for us instead of becoming the person that someone else needs us to be. And here's what his research said. Destructive to marriage is the assumption that there's someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem in marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married to. If you're sitting with your spouse today, look at him and say, hey, stranger. Just right now, look at your spouse and say, hey, stranger. And then I want you to say this. Thanks for being willing to get to know me. Right now, turn to your spouse and say it out loud. Thanks for being willing to get to know me. You see, when we are willing to serve Jesus, we're willing to serve 
our spouse for a lifetime. Let's look at the second statement. I have found someone in my spouse that I trust enough to submit to for the rest of my life. True or false? Is this how you view marriage? I have found someone in my spouse that I trust enough to submit to for the rest of my life. You heard me say a little while ago, the greatest obstacle to the Christian life is the loss of independence that it requires. But the greatest opportunity for your marriage is the loss of independence that actually allows two to become one. You know, a wedding is actually a funeral in the sense that two individuals are willing to die to their individualism so that they can start over together as one, not two. Like a wedding is a funeral in the fact that two people say, I'm willing to die to myself so I can now live for the other one. I have found someone in my spouse that I trust enough to submit to for the rest of my life. Is, is that your marriage? Let's look at statement number three. I have found someone in my spouse that I'm motivated to sacrifice for because of how they sacrifice for me. True or false? Is that your heart towards your spouse today? I have found someone in my spouse that I'm motivated to sacrifice for because of how they sacrificed for me. Let me give you a truth today, okay? If somebody married you, they are sacrificing. I hope you get that. If somebody married you, they are sacrificing. Like, can I get an amen? Like, I, I hope I hear it from where I am. If somebody married you, they're sacrificing. Why? Because you have so many shortfalls in your life. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this. Both men and women today want a marriage in which they can receive emotional and sexual satisfaction from someone who will simply let them be themselves. They want a spouse who is fun, intellectually stimulating, sexually attractive, with many common interests, and who on top of it all is supportive of their personal goals and the way they're living now. They also desire a spouse who's almost completely pulled together, someone very low maintenance, without much in the way of personal problems, and someone who doesn't demand significant change. We are searching, therefore, for the ideal person, happy, healthy, interesting, and content in life, never before in history. Has there been a society filled with people so idealistic in what they're seeking in a spouse? Now, let me speak to those of you who are single, maybe those of you who are divorced in here. You need to realize your heart was created to be perfectly loved by someone perfect for you. But it's not a husband or a wife, it's Jesus. Like you were created with a hole in your heart to, have, to be perfectly loved by someone who is perfect for you, but it's only Jesus. And if you're holding out, waiting to find that in a spouse, one, good luck finding it, and two, when you find them, the pressure you put on them to be perfect for you will kill them and kill your marriage. Some of you still have more of a gaping hole in your heart than you should from a divorce because you expected your spouse to be more than they were meant to be or more than they could be. You can't look for somebody to marry that will fill the void in your life that only Jesus can fill. But if we can find unconditional love and acceptance through Jesus, then we can learn to try to give that to our spouse. So marriage is finding someone you're motivated to sacrifice for, one, because they're willing to put up with you and sacrifice for you. We sacrifice for our spouse because they've sacrificed less than perfection to marry us. And then finally, number four, I have found someone in my spouse that I'm committed to add value to. 
because their success and our success is more important than my success. You know, spouses in a healthy marriage always believe that they're better together. That's the reality. People who are in a healthy marriage always believe that they are better together. And this is not just the story of marriage. Paul said it is the mystery of the gospel. That God came down as Jesus and he did these things for you. We look at this list and you say, Christian, no one would ever love me that way. Yes, they would. Jesus did. Jesus found someone in you that he was willing to serve with his life. Jesus found someone in you that he was willing to submit to so you could have a better life. Jesus found someone in you that he was motivated to sacrifice for. Jesus found someone in you who together with him could do more and greater things than he could do on his own. That list that we look at and long for, Jesus did for you. And he did for us. And Paul says he did that partially so that by learning this type of love, we could then turn and give it to the person that one day we'll be married to so that we can be better together. I read the story last summer of Henry and Jeanette DeLang. Maybe some of you read that as well. A couple from South Dakota who were married for 63 years before they died 20 minutes apart from each other last summer. They were married in 1953 with their family and their friends, and their story is just unbelievable. Last summer at 87, Jeanette, who'd been living in a nursing home since 2011 because of Alzheimer's, was joined by her husband, Henry, who was 86. Her kids said for three times a day for five years, her husband would come and visit her every day to eat meals with her and make sure she wasn't by herself. But after five years, he contracted cancer, And he ended up, after not being able to have it treated in a nursing home beside her, and for the last few weeks of their life, they shared a room in a nursing home together. On the evening of July 31st, all five of their kids gathered around, and the doctor told him, it doesn't look like it's going to be long. He took Henry's pulse, and he said, you know, I actually think your dad might go first. He's looking very, very weak. And then he turned to the mom, and he said, actually, the, your mother might go first. She's, she's not doing well. And as the kids read their Bible to their parents at 5, 10 p.m., Jeanette passed away. After the doctors came in and confirmed it, at around 5, 23, Keith, one of Henry's sons, woke his dad up and said, Dad, mom's gone. You can go now. Mom's gone to heaven. You don't have to fight anymore. You can go to be with her. He said his dad looked up, looked over at his mom, realized she was gone, and literally laid down and went to heaven. He died right beside her 20 minutes after she was pronounced dead. Better together. You know, we hear that story, and it's a great story, but it's one thing to die together. It's another thing to live together and to, and to give our lives for one another. And Paul says, when we realize that Jesus did that for us, it motivates us to do it for our spouse, to find someone in a spouse who we're willing to serve for a lifetime. Or if we have a spouse, to realize we are called to serve them for a lifetime. To find someone in a spouse who we're willing to submit to, to give them a higher rank, 
to give them leadership in things that are important. And if we have a spouse, to be willing to do that, if we haven't yet, to find someone in our spouse that we're willing to sacrifice for or to look at our spouse and begin a life of sacrifice and to live for their success and our success more than just my success. As our church begins this journey together the next three weeks, I want to pray that God will help us to learn and understand the love of Jesus in a way that we can embrace it and then give it to other people. Would you pray with me? And with every head bowed and every eye closed right now, just a moment, Pastor Ryan is going to come and close the service for us. But with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you open up your heart? And would you just pray something like this today? God, help me to see Jesus in the way that I've been created to see him and serve him. Forgive me, God, for accepting all that Jesus has for me without giving all of myself in return. And help me, Lord. Help me to love the way Jesus loved me and motivate and move me to love differently. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you're married today, if you're married and you're here in our auditorium, if you're married and you're streaming, would you right now just pray this for your spouse? Would you pray this, Lord? Show me how to serve them for a lifetime. Would you pray that for your spouse right now? Lord, show me how to serve them for a lifetime. Would you pray this for your spouse, Lord? Show me how to trust them enough to submit to them for a lifetime. Would you pray that, Lord? Show me how to trust them enough to submit to them for a lifetime. Would you pray this for your spouse, Lord? Show me how to sacrifice for them the way Jesus sacrificed for me. Show me, Lord, how to sacrifice for them the way Jesus sacrificed for me. And then finally, would you pray, Lord, help me to believe we are better together. Would you pray that for your spouse right now? Lord, help me to believe that we are better together. Now, Father, as we close this first week of this series, I thank you for the mystery that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 5. The mystery where the gospel helps us see marriage and marriage helps us see the gospel, the mystery of how they go together. And God, I thank you that when the Apostle Paul was giving us a list of how to live wisely, how to live the way God wants us to live, that he started with marriage and said, let's start here first. And then, Lord, eventually he taught us how to parent. We'll talk about that in weeks to come. He taught us how to interact with people at work. We'll talk about that. He taught us how to kind of put up with spiritual battles. But, Lord, he started with marriage. And, God, I pray for the people in this room who are married Lord, that you will strengthen their marriages in this next three weeks. I pray for the people in the room who are divorced. 
God, that you will encourage and comfort their hearts by what they learn. And Lord, show them a beautiful picture of marriage that inspires them. And Lord, begins to heal their heart. And Lord, for those who are single, God, I pray that first and foremost, they'll learn through this series that there is a hole in their heart created to be loved perfectly by someone who is perfect. But Lord, I pray they'll realize that person is Jesus. And Lord, after allowing Jesus to come in and reshape their heart, help them to turn around and be able to love someone the way Jesus loved them. Lord, as they move forward into a life that may or may not include marriage one day, God, I pray that strong marriages live through the lens of the gospel. Lord, we'll mark our church so that people in our community might not just see happy marriages, but that people might see the goodness of Jesus in our world through our lives, through our love, and through our marriages. God, we love you. Be with us as we work to be better together the next three weeks. And Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Pastor Ryan is going to come and lead us. I can't wait to be back with you all next week. Invite somebody to come back as we get into message number two in Ephesians chapter five. I'll see you next week.